Words that I'd like to direct your attention to found once again in the book of Job. We're looking at Job chapters 32 to 37. Before I again, please join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we can't stop praying. Lord, even as you've commanded us to pray without ceasing. Because we need you for everything in life. We, we know that there is no good that we accomplish apart from your spirit. Apart from you, Christ, we can do nothing. We are, we are the branches, you are the vine. Lord, we get all of our spiritual sustenance from you. And so we don't want to approach your word in the flesh with distracted minds, distracted hearts, set on other things. We confess we know that often that is the tendency because we are, we are flesh and blood, prone to temptation. And so we, we come to your word and begin by asking for your assistance to give us understanding, to help us both understand what it says and then how we should live in light of it. Deepen our understanding of you that we would worship you for who you are, not for who we imagine you to be. Correct whatever ideas or concepts we have that are errant and help us to see you, see ourselves rightly in light of your word. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Title this message, Where is God when I suffer? What we mean by that question, when we ask that question, essentially is what what is God up to in my suffering? Have I done something that I'm being disciplined for? Is that why I'm suffering? Is there some lesson I'm supposed to learn? Or am I just experiencing the consequences of somebody else's bad decision? Am I just collateral damage? Where is God... And why won't he answer my prayers for deliverance, though I give them day after day? And this was essentially the question that Job asked, as we saw last week in chapters 28 through 31. It made no sense at all to him why he was suffering and why God wouldn't respond to his cries. And you could think of the previous chapters of Job, particularly chapters 3 through 27, as man's attempt to try and explain what's going on in Job's life. In the deliberations that Job has with his three friends. After Job complains about his miserable situations, each of his friends give their take on the situation. More or less suggests that if Job would just simply repent, acknowledge he's a sinner, then he would be restored. But all of their wisdom is Foolishness, as we know, because of chapters one and chapter two, we know that Job's not suffering because of anything he's done. Sinfully, it's because God has pointed him out to Satan and Satan has brought these evils upon him. But then we get to chapter 32. We're given a different perspective on Job's suffering. Previously, we saw man's perspective, according to man's wisdom, and in chapters 32 to 37 or yeah, 32 to 37, we're introduced to a man named Elihu 
who serves as the prophet of God. The name Elihu means something like, my God is he. And unlike the other three friends who are Edomite, he is a Hebrew. In fact, he's described as a Buzzite. And Buzz was one of the descendants of Nahor. Nahor, of course, was the brother of Abraham. Uh, Elihu is also, or Elihu, can be pronounced either way. Uh, he's also the family of Ram. Uh, Ram, according to the genealogy in the book of Ruth, is one of David's ancestors. And so it's possible that, that he's an ancestor of Christ as well. And there are a number of textual reasons that demonstrate that unlike the three friends who represent the weakness of human wisdom, Elihu speaks of a prophet of God. He's representative of special revelation. Why do I say that? Well, here's a few reasons. First of all, unlike the other three friends who, along with Job, at the end of the book, get rebuked by God, Elihu's not even mentioned. And so you would imagine... God to have said something if Elihu had said anything wrong. Because even Job gets rebuked. Secondly, the structure, where he comes up and how he's presented, sets him apart from the other three. Even sets him apart from Job. Remember, whereas the the three friends spoke increasingly less as their arguments and the deliberations went forward, Bildad had like a paragraph, a few lines, And Zophar doesn't speak at all. When Elihu comes on the scene, after Job talks for three chapters, Elihu gets six chapters. And Job doesn't respond to any of them. Unlike every time one of the other friends speak, Job just points out how bad their logic is, how they're misapplying theology. But Job, even when he's invited by Elihu, doesn't say anything to contrast what Elihu says. And the only person to speak after Elihu, in fact, is God himself. And in fact, God and what God says to Job actually seems to affirm everything that Elihu has said. So in that sense, Elihu is actually just serving as an introduction to God. And you'll see at the very end of Elihu's speech in chapter 37, that's actually what Elihu's doing. He's introducing the main show, so to speak, which we'll look at next week when God pronounces his counsel to Job. Elihu also doesn't defend either Job or his friends. He points out where the friends failed, and he points out where Job failed. And that's actually where most of his attention is drawn, is to Job's failures. He points out that the, the friends clinging to this principle of divine retribution is just naive, that, that good things only happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. He says that's just errant. But he also clearly points out where Job goes wrong in his justification of himself and his accusations against God. Now, his, his speeches, as I mentioned, cover six chapters. And we're going to look at them all briefly just to get the, the, the essence of everything he's trying to communicate. And the speeches are, that he presents are actually broken up by the phrase, Elihu continued and said. And he gives four speeches over these chapters. Let's look first of all at his introduction in chapter 32, beginning of verse 1. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. 
But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ran, burned against his against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God and his anger burned against his three friends because they found no answer and yet had condemned Job. What the first verses emphasize is that Elihu finally feels compelled to speak because he's angry. And he's angry because none of the friends were able to refute Job when he erred in his words. In verses 6 through 14, Elihu explains that despite his anger, he, he held back. He waited. He waited for one of these well-known men who were known for their wisdom who might have been the smartest guys of their time. He waited for them to say something to refute Job because they were older, they were wiser, and he was a young man. But he saw that they, they, they gave no refutation. In fact, by not being able to refute Job, they actually suggest that what Job, is, what Job said was true, that God, in fact, had treated him as his enemy. They were so confounded by Job, though, they eventually ran out of words, he says in verse 15. And this infuriates Elihu. And so now he's speaking. Let's look at his first speech in verse in chapter 33. First, Elihu rebukes Job for having declared himself to be completely innocent and thereby overstating his own righteousness. Good verse eight. He says, surely you have spoken in my hearing and I have heard the sound of your words. Quoting Job, he says, I am pure without transgression. I'm innocent and there's no guilt in me. Now, for the record, he made this declaration in 921, chapter 10, verse 7, 23, verse 7 and 20, chapter 27, verse 4. And in fact, it was the main point of all of chapter 31. And because Job is so convinced of his own innocence that he's done nothing wrong, he goes too far and actually accuses God of treating him unjustly. Look at verse 10. He quotes Job as saying, Behold, he invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. And Job said this in chapter 10, 13, 19, 6, and also chapters 13, 24 to 27. And then Elihu gives his thesis statement to Job in verse 12. Behold, let me tell, me, tell you, you are not right in this. For God is greater than man. And look at verse 13. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account for all of his doings? In this complaint, Job was essentially asking, why is God silent in my suffering? Why doesn't he answer my prayers? Why does, why does he continue to let the pain last? And in fact, even get worse. During the difficult days of World War II, a young Jewish girl in the Warsaw ghetto of Poland managed to escape over the wall and she went and hid in a cave. And tragically, she died before the Allied soldiers liberated the ghetto. But before she died, she had scratched on the wall of her cave these powerful creeds. Quote, I believe in the sun, even though it's not shining. 
I believe in love even when feeling it or not. I believe in God even when he is silent. In verses 13 through the rest of the chapter, Elihu wants to make very clear to Job that Job, God, Job, God has not been silent. He's not been silent. He speaks to men in their suffering. He speaks directly to them through divine revelation, special revelation, and he speaks to them through their suffering. He first of all explains how God speaks to men in special revelation, in dreams and visions. Look at verse 14. Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices. In a dream, a vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men, when they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. Now, we need to keep in mind that Job was written before any scripture had been written down. And we know that before the law came through Moses, that God would speak to people through prophets, men like Noah or Abel and others. Or he would speak to men and women through dreams, like he did with Pharaoh and Abimelech and Abraham, Jacob and Joseph. So God would, even before scripture had been penned, God still communicated his will to people through prophets and through dreams. And the purpose of these dreams is seen in verse 17. That he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. So God communicated in dreams to warn people of the error of their ways so that they might repent and not destroy their lives in their sin. But again, the events that are described here in Job take place before Scripture has been written. For us living today, he doesn't need to communicate it to us through prophets. He doesn't need to communicate to us through dreams and visions because we have the whole of written scripture. We have everything that we need, right? All scripture is given by God and is profitable for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. Second Timothy three fifteen. As the Bible says in Hebrews four, we have the Bible that is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We have all that we need from God, and it's immediately relevant to our situations. It's the living word. It's completely sufficient for us. So God speaks to those who are suffering now through special revelation, namely his word. If you want to know God's will in the midst of suffering, He's given it to us in his word. The second way God communicates to men in their suffering is through their suffering. Look at verse 19. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones. Elias' point is that God uses suffering to discipline us, to chasten us, to warn us, essentially to wake us up to the very real consequences of sin. Because we're very content as sinners to just think of sin in the abstract. Okay, I know sin. We can even give a good Westminster uh, confession of faith, definition of sin. We know that sin is some transgression against God. It's offensive to Him. And yet, we sin so freely and so willingly. 
even though we know what sin is, even if we can say we know that sin leads to death, sin leads people to hell, we often need more to recognize how bad sin really is. Suffering gives us a taste for what sin does. Sin, the world was not created with sin. Sin didn't come into the world until man sinned. And then with sin came death. And with death, all suffering. This is what sin does. Sin leads to suffering. And God uses suffering the world to help us understand the true nature of sin. That we would taste and see what sin actually does. Before we'd be willing to listen to the lies of Satan. We'd recognize eating the fruit isn't worth it. When we see what sin does, we can go, I don't want that for my life. John Piper provided, I think, a really helpful explanation of this theological truth in one of his sermons on Romans 8. He says, the meaning of all the misery in the world is that sin is horrific. All natural evil is a statement about the horror of moral evil. If you see a a suffering in the world that is unspeakably horrible, let it make you shudder at how unspeakably horrible sin is against an infinitely holy God. The meaning of futility and the meaning of corruption and the meaning of our groaning is that sin, falling short of the glory of God, is ghastly, hideous, and repulsive beyond imagination. Unless you have some sense of the infinite holiness of God and the unspeakable outrage of sin against this God, you will inevitably see the futility and suffering of this universe as an overreaction. But in fact, the point of our miseries, our futility, our corruption, our groaning, is to teach us the horror of sin and the preciousness of redemption and hope. Right? Suffering teaches us how awful sin really is because we have no concept of how awful our sin is, what it does to other people. I mean, we might be aware of what sin does to us, but rarely are we aware of how we hurt other people. And we certainly are aware of how we offend a holy God. And to most people, hell is really not that threatening. They just have some cartoon character caricature of hell in their mind. They have no idea what sin actually results in. And suffering teaches us what sin actually does. And the suffering in this world is just a taste of the full consequences of sin. But it also teaches us how desperately we need salvation. I mean, just think of Job. Remember, remember what Job said in, the, in, the, in his first deliberation as everything was stripped away from him. Job learned the most fundamental thing that he needed. It can be summarized in four points. What he needed was four things. First of all, he needed to die to this life. He recognized he needed forgiveness for his transgressions. He recognized he needed a mediator who would stand between him and God. And he recognized that he needed to be released from death as well. He needed a resurrected body. In his suffering, Job recognized truths 
that no amount of revelation probably would have taught him. Because he learned it experientially. He recognized, even in the midst of all the silliness that his friends were throwing at him, he recognized what he fundamentally needed was Christ. Without even knowing who Christ was. But he wouldn't have recognized these needs, these greatest needs, until everything had been stripped from him. And often, you know experientially too as believers, you wouldn't have come to Christ either had not you fully understood the awfulness of your sin. And we can praise God that He's revealed revealed Christ to us and the great magnificent truths of the gospel without having to go through what Job went through. In a sense, Job has been a, is a great ministry to us because he learned through his awful experience truths that we just get to learn from by reading about it. And as it's revealed in the, in the gospel. As C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. See, God does speak to us often through His Word, through the counsel, biblical counsel of others, just even through general, natural revelation, but often we just ignore Him. But when we suffer, all of a sudden, we're ready to listen. And God does that to us because He's merciful, because He's kind. Because this is what we ultimately need to recognize. Our enemy is not God. Our enemy is ourselves. It's sin. And Elihu continues in verse 23, affirming the truth that Job discovered in his suffering. Look at verse 23. He says, if there is an angel as a mediator for him, Job, if you have somebody who can mediate for you, one out of a thousand, to remind a man what is right for him, then be gracious to him and say, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresher than youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Job, you have somebody that can pray for you on on your behalf. Such a Messiah. Then he will pray to God and, and God will accept him. That he may see his face with joy. And he may restore his righteousness to man. He will sing to men and say, I've sinned and perverted what is right. It's not proper for me. He, my Redeemer, has redeemed my soul from going to the pit. And my life shall see light. So Elihu's saying, Job, you got it. You got it right. This is what you need. And if God blesses you as such a one, that is all that you need in this life. You didn't need all that stuff that was stripped away from you. All those things that gave you pleasure, yes, they were great. But Job... Really, in your life, you need one thing. And you figured it out. God was merciful to you to teach you what you really needed. And He's revealed this to you. There is a Redeemer, as you affirmed. And Elijah was a prophet, does what many prophets do. And in this section, he's actually giving both a, um, a kind of a dual fulfillment, a near and far aspect to his prophecy. Ultimately, Elihu's words point to Christ, the ultimate Redeemer, who will mediate for us and redeem us from the pit of death. 
as it says. But, but there's other types of redeemers that God sends into our lives. Right? Men like Elihu, who are willing to bring a word of instruction, a word of warning, a word of rebuke, to lead us back to the way of righteousness. Right? And this is what he says in verse 29. God speaks to men in all these ways multiple times throughout their life. Yet men still ignore him. God often does speak to men. He does reveal what they really need, but men ignore him. At the end of his speech, Elihu pauses and he says, Okay, Job, correct me if I'm wrong. If I've said anything wrong, you corrected your three friends, correct me. And there's no response. Job has nothing to say. So Elihu continues with his second speech. And in the second speech, Elihu vindicates the justice of God. Job in his complaining suggested that God was not treating him rightly or justly. He also pours contempt on the foolish wisdom of men. And the speech is broken up into five parts based upon Elihu's statement, listen, men of understanding. And he's using this phrase as a phrase of scorn, right? You guys boasted about how wise you were and how Job needed to listen to you. Well, let me show you where you went wrong, what you should have corrected about Job. You guys think you're wise. Let me show you what you should have said. So he first rebukes Job for accusing God of treating him unjustly in verses 1 through 9. Look at verse 5 in particular. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my right. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What Job said in his self-defense is, is, I'm the one who's been wronged. I'm the one without transgression. I'm the one whose rights have been violated. God has taken away my right. What's the implication? God is the one who is acting not right. God is the one who's being unjust, not me. To which Elihu declares in verse 7, What man is like Job who drinks up derision like water? In other words, he's saying, Are you nuts, Job? Think about who you're talking about. But, but Elihu knows why, why Job says what he says. <laughs> Where this claim comes from in verse 8. Job, who goes in company with workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men, right? It's, it's these men of understanding who, through their counsel, have led Job to think God is attacking him. We've got to remember that, that before his three friends showed up to comfort him, how Job responded to his suffering. The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It says in all these ways, Job did not sin with his words. He said to his wife, shall we not receive good and evil from the Lord? I mean, before his friends showed up, Job was fine. He trusted God. He had no qualms with God. It was through interacting with human wisdom, man in his pomp, that leads Job astray. Job astray. Men who had... Really good theology, but a really bad application of it. And Elihu's second point, seen in verse 10, is that God cannot do wrong. Look at verse 10. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. 
far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham quoted. If such a thing for, for, for if such a thing were possible for God to be unjust, what, what Elihu says, the whole universe would become unhinged. All flesh would perish together. Man would return to the dust. This brings Elihu to his third point in verse 16. If God is sovereign over all kings and God alone can rebuke them because only God is above them, who does Job think he is to rebuke God and call God unjust? God shows no partiality of men because God knows everything that happens. God sees everything that's taking place. Unlike Job. God knows what men are up to. God knows how men sin in their hearts or in their actions. He's not capable of being deceived. Verses 21 to 23. Notice what he says in verse 29. When he keeps quiet, who then can condemn? When he hides his face, who then can behold him? That is in regard both to nation and man. In other words, nobody can condemn God for being silent, for not acting as they might expect. They can't condemn God's sovereign rule over creation and men because they have no idea what God is up to. Only God understands what God is up to. And God is directing all of his purposes precisely according to his will. And therefore, verse 35, Elihu concludes that Job has sinned in his speech regarding God. Men of understanding will say to me, a wise man who hears me, Job speaks without knowledge. In his words are without wisdom. Job ought to be tried to the limit because he answers like wicked men, like men of understanding. Job, you were fine until you engaged with wicked men. So the point is, Job, these wicked men, though, have actually showed you you're not as righteous as you thought you were. The test of deliberating with his three friends have actually exposed that there's there's quite a bit of pride left in Job, quite a bit of self-righteousness to the extent that Job would exalt his righteousness over God's. Just shows trials show just how self-centered we are, because when we're being tried every we don't like it and we're so used to just getting what we want doing what we feel like suffering strips us of that freedom and it exposes we love ourselves in our flesh more than anything else. And this was exposed in Job. In his complaining, Job imagined standing before God, remember, and and making his case. If I could just come before God and make my case before him. I would explain how God has gone wrong. I'd explain to God his error and clear up this misunderstanding. He probably imagines God saying something like, oh, sorry, Job, you're right. I missed that. Thank you for correcting my error. And how eloquently, Job, how eloquently you defend your own righteousness. You are just such a righteous, sinless man. Please accept my apology. Job, for for all the suffering that you faced. 
I've, I've just made a big mistake. I think likewise, we often assume that, that we're so right. We imagine defending ourselves, usually before, I, don't, I doubt, probably before God, but at least before other people. Making our case for how we could have won that argument better. Or how we could have, in going into an argument, how we can convince somebody that we're right and they're wrong. But as proof of this tendency towards self-righteousness, just consider, have you ever imagined yourself losing those arguments? And we always win, which just shows how self-righteous we actually are. We just don't realize it because we assume we're right. Isn't that an amazing phenomena that everybody in the world assumes they're right? But everybody else in the world knows that they're wrong. But suffering exposes this tendency towards self-righteousness and it shows us how we need to grow. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 119.71, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Elihu then begins his third speech in chapter 35. And here Elihu refutes the claim of Job that God really doesn't care for the righteous in their suffering. If he did, he would intervene. Look at verse 2. Do you think this is according to justice? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit will I have more than if I had sinned? Keep going to verse 6. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a son of man. Job's Elihu's point to Job is, Job, you're so self-centered, you don't even recognize how low of a view of God you have. God isn't affected by your righteousness, nor is he affected by your sin. You don't do anything to God. You add nothing to him when you obey him and you don't hurt him when you disobey him. You just hurt yourself and your fellow creatures. The assumption that God is somehow benefited by your obedience is nothing but frank arrogance. Who do you think you are and how weak do you think God is? He doesn't need anything from you. God gives commands to you, Job, for your benefit. So that you might know how you should live and, and prosper in the way. You're not giving anything to him. Elijah's second point in verse 9 is men still miss God's care for them because they're so self-focused and proud. People ignore God's care for them in the good days. They don't recognize all the ways that God is blessing them in preserving them from health or giving them blessings of food and prosperity, insights, ideas, so that they could succeed. They don't recognize it. Because, again, they think that it's coming from themselves. They're the ones that are producing all this success in their life. As if they brought themselves life. We just assume, hey, it's all my industry, all my thinking, all my hard work, all my discipline. 
And so when things are going well, we just pride ourselves in our success. But it's when the dark days come, then all of a sudden, then we realize, oh, wow, we need God. Because I can't, I can't help myself. Verse 9, because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. And they cry out for help because of the arm of the Almighty. But no one says, where is my God, my maker, who gives songs in the night? Who encourages me in the night, in other words. Who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth. Men, you're a, you're a human being. You're not a dumb animal. Do you, do you recognize that's a gift of God? Who makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. And so when they finally do cry out for help in verse 12, God doesn't immediately answer because they haven't learned what they're supposed to learn yet. All they've learned is like a spoiled child, they can cry out for help and God would, would answer them. But what they need to learn is they have a need for a savior. They need to learn their sin. They need to learn their weakness, their desperation, their need for their creator. So God delays in answering their need because they still need to learn how desperate they are for God. Verse 12, they cry out, but he doesn't answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say you don't behold him. The case is before him and you must wait for him. It's not your place to tell God when to act, Job. It's in God's hands. And you need to wait for God to reveal His purposes in His time. And this brings us to the fourth and final speech where Elihu no longer responds to what's being said, what's been said by Job, but he goes on to give a further explanation where he says God's power is beyond man's understanding. Chapter 36. Really in this chapter, Elihu is just simply saying, we have no clue what God is up to. If we could only glimpse just a little bit of how God is managing the universe, it would blow our minds. Four times in chapter 36, Elihu uses the word behold, and then he gives a power statement. Behold the power of God. Recognize the power of God, Job. Job, that's what you need to do in your suffering. See the, the glory, the magnificence, the splendor of God, how God is working in the world in ways that you could never conceive of. And in particular, he points to meteorology, how God is just working in the skies. He doesn't bring out quantum physics. He doesn't talk about other aspects of creation. He just points to the sky. Job, you don't understand snow, rain, hail. You don't understand any of it. And how God uses it to bless and to bring judgment. Why do you think that you can understand what God's up to in your little life? His powers beyond our understanding. He begins his argument in verse 5. Behold, God is mighty but does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. 
Right? Elihu argues that God is mighty in how he understands what's going on, his purposes, how he's governing the universe. This point in verses 5 through 15 is that God, God does treat all men alike. His justice is always the standard. The problem is we don't see how God is bringing out his justice in life. We just don't see it. And it's okay to be honest. We don't see it. It often does look like wicked prosper and the good suffer. But we have no more ability to understand what God's up to in bringing forth his justice in this life than Anant has the ability to understand the inner workings of a rocket at Cape Canaveral. In fact, Anant would have a better understanding of a rocket than we have of the infinite purposes of God. And we need to recognize that. He's working on a plane that is way beyond our grasp. And the evidence of that is everywhere in creation. In the rest of the section through verse 21, Elihu goes on to explain how God shows his ineffable power in using all of his sovereign resources to variously discipline men in their sin. But he points out that godless people never seem to learn the lesson. They never wake up to their need to repent. And so God just often uses his justice, expresses his justice, I should say, by giving men over to their sin. Verse 13. But the godless in heart lay it up anger. They do not cry out for help when he binds them. They die in their youth and their life perishes among the cult prostitutes. Those are male prostitutes of the Canaanites. It's Romans 1. Right? Often it looks like, oh, the wicked are getting away with whatever they want. But the reality is they're, the fact that they're even engaged in half of what they're doing is a judgment. He's giving them over to the, the, the shame of their own pride and destroying their flesh. We just often don't see it as judgment because of our finite understanding of justice. The righteous, however, have their eyes open to their folly. They, when, they, when they suffer, they wake up. Maybe I've done something wrong. And so we repent and escape from the danger of the pit, verses 15 and 16. But even after being rescued, the righteous need to still guard themselves from presumption. They shouldn't think and presume that, oh, now that I've been rescued once, the rest of my life is going to be fine, right? Christians do this all the time. I'm saved. I'm a child of the king. Therefore, I can get away with doing stupid things, with rebellion. And I'll just, I just have to ask God for forgiveness and, and everything's going to be okay. And we don't recognize that, no, any sin we commit is going to bring destruction into our life. And if we're doing these sins with a high-handed hand in the air, rebellious, you know, I'm forgiven in Christ, I'm going to receive grace, all the more God needs to use discipline because we don't realize what we're doing to ourselves. And then we wonder, God, why are you picking on me? Well, I was saying, Job, you need to recognize God uses suffering 
to wake men up in ways that they don't even realize. He is just with all men in their sin, even if we don't recognize what he's up to. Look at verse 22. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who's a teacher like him? Right? Who has appointed him his way? And who has said, you have done wrong? Right? Instead of falling into pride and presumption, the righteous man should just stop and exalt the glorious justice and sovereign power of God. Rather than complaining, recognize who God is. That's your greatest need, to know your God. It's not to escape suffering. It's not to get your will to be done on earth. In fact, he says, if we could just stop and consider the power of God as expressed in meteorology, we would all just shut our mouths, put our hands over our mouths and worship. Just looking to the heavens should put man in his proper place. And that's what he explains through verses 24 through the rest of all of chapter 37. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. We'll look at verse 1. At this also my heart trembles. What causes a lie whose heart to tremble and leap from its place? Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven, he lets it loose and his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roars. He thunders with his magnificent voice and does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders and his voice wondrously with his voice wondrously doing great things which you can't comprehend. God has designed thunder and lightning to instill within us a fear of him. Now, we just happen to live in a part of the world where we don't get tremendous lightning storms. We get some pretty decent wind storms that cause havoc, some floods every now and then. But God designs meteorology to wake us up. We're powerless. And he's almighty. But again, as I mentioned earlier, Elihu's speech on meteorology as he, as he just explains the glorious wonders of God as seen in creation in the skies. Not only does it just exalt the power of God, but also serves as an introduction to the coming of God. Because as Job is speaking, the presence of God is actually seen on the horizon. And as a storm is beginning to build on the horizon, and Elihu is speaking with Job and his three friends, they see in the distance this whirlwind, a tornado beginning to develop. You can hear the thunder and you can hear the lightning. That's what's being described in this chapter. And then you look at verse 22. Out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is exalted in power and He will do no violence to justice and abundant righteousness. And then he concludes in verse 24. This is the point of Job. Therefore, men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise in heart. God is not impressed by men of understanding. Men who think they've got God figured out. The wise man doesn't have God figured out. The wise man is terrified of God. 
That's his last words before God speaks from out of the whirlwind. And we'll look at that next week. Heavenly Father, we, we know, all of us know, we have not treated You with the honor and the glory and the, the awe that You deserve. And Lord, in our suffering, and even in the, in the smallest suffering, little annoyances of life, we so freely sin. God, we want to have a right view of You and we have, want to have a right, honest, sincere understanding of ourselves that none of us would be blind, blind to any of our pride and none of us would be content with any sliver of self-righteousness. But that, God, we ask that You would work within us a genuine humility that is content in loss, that is content in suffering, not because we like to lose, not because we like to be humbled, but because we so fear You and revere You. We want to be true worshipers who love You, not ourselves, but who love You with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. We ask these things in Christ's name.